This summer we're studying the book of Proverbs. We're seeking to learn the wisdom uh, that the Lord has for us in this book of, of what it means to be wise, what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord, what it means to seek Him in all things. And today we're going to be uh, seeing what Proverbs has to teach us about humility as well as its opposite pride. Jerry Bridges, uh, some of you will recognize the name as a uh, Christian author. Uh, I was uh, able to know him a little bit uh, in his older years and would be one of those people I think of as one of the most wise and humble saints. Uh, he wrote a book on humility that was published, I believe, after his death. And he said in the introduction to that book that it's a daunting task to write a book on something like humility uh, because he said no one knew better than him how truly unqualified he was in his own personal experience of pursuing humility. Uh, and he was afraid that as the author, people would assume that he was writing as one who had figured out humility, one who, who could say, follow me, you know, I have studied this, I have pursued it, I have learned it. And he feared people would assume he was attempting to write as an expert, one who no longer struggled with pride and was writing to show others the way. He said, in fact, there would be a pretty healthy dose of irony in anyone who wrote about humility with such an attitude. Uh, not least because the very assertion itself that you have mastered hum humility is, is actually quite, quite pri uh, pri prideful, proud, proudful. It's one of those things. And, and so he insisted that he would go on and write the book anyway, not because he had mastered that craft and was writing as a model, but rather because he could say, I, we will study the scriptures together and seek to follow the Lord in this together. Uh, and he said he wrote as a struggling practitioner who wished to share what he had learned and what he was striving to put into practice. And I approach humility the same way today, not coming to you as a master of the craft, uh, but as one who knows my own struggles with pride and yet is able to, to read what the scriptures teach and desires to submit myself to them and desires for all of us to submit ourselves to the word of the Lord. And so uh, we will look to the scriptures and we'll look to Christ as our model for humility today. I've got a selection of Proverbs that are collected there on page 9 uh, in the bulletin. And as we've been doing with Proverbs, since we're sort of taking it topically, uh, it's often easier to follow along in the bulletin than in your Bibles, but I encourage you to have both available. I'm going to read this collection of Proverbs here on page 9 in the bulletin. And uh, as is our custom, let me ask, if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we hear the reading of God's holy word today? This is the word of the Lord from the book of Proverbs. Towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, 
our sin. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the book of Proverbs that you have given to us that we might learn wisdom, that we might learn the fear of the Lord, that we might learn humility from you. So, Father, we pray as we devote ourselves to the teaching of your word right now, as we gather around your footstool to to learn from you, we do ask that you yourself would be our teacher. Show us the way we ought to go. Lead us to Christ. Help us to see his glory, his beauty, his humility. And Lord, may we seek to follow after him, to be more like him. We pray that you would do this, Lord, by the power of your spirit, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Humility is wisdom. It is wise to pursue humility. Many people would consider it foolishness. In fact, I approach the topic of humility today knowing that of all the things we have studied and learned in the book of Proverbs, humility is perhaps one of the most countercultural things that we will study, one of the most countercultural attitudes that we will, as Christians, seek to pursue and seek to grow in is this attitude of, of humility uh, and eschewing pride. Humility is simply not one of our cultural values if we think about the world that we live in today. In fact, it would be easy to, to draw numerous examples of the way that pride is one of our cultural values today. We live in a society that prizes pride. We live in a world where everything is about seeking number one, about getting ahead, even if it means occasionally stepping on others, it means asserting yourself. The solution to every problem seems to be that you simply need to take more pride in your work, take more pride in yourself, in who you are, in what you do. That's the path to honor, they would say, to glory, to success. And yet, ironically, they've got it exactly backwards according to the scriptures where Proverbs 15.33 says, uh, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. And if we want to seek after honor, the path begins with humility. The Bible couldn't be any more clear that humility is very dear to the heart of God. Regardless of how practical it may seem, regardless of how successful humility might make us, the Bible is clear that God delights in humility. God loves humility. Here's what I want us to see. Three very simple truths from the book of Proverbs. The danger of pride, the beauty of humility, and the only sure path to humility. The danger of pride, the beauty of humility, and then to be very practical about it, what is the path towards humility, this virtue that is very elusive, that is very difficult? But first, is pride dangerous? I said our first point is the danger of pride. How dangerous is it? Well, we read chapter 16, verse 5. It says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord, be assured he will not go unpunished. That's a pretty severe 
statement of the fact there. The word abomination, oftentimes we know in the scriptures, it's, it's used for either idolatrous sacrifices that are an abomination to the Lord or gross sexual sins, things that defile the person, things that defile the temple of the Lord. It's not a word we use very much and, and partly we don't use it much because we feel the weight of that word. We feel the severity that, that there's not much truly in life that rises to that point that we would say such and such is an abomination to the Lord. And yet, this verse says that pride, arrogance, the very attitude of the heart that seeks itself is an abomination. Why is it so severe? There's several reasons. We see that the, the uh, foundation of pride, first of all, pride is a spiritual issue. Right? Before it is an emotional or a relational issue, the foundation is a, a spiritual issue. The essence of pride in our heart, regardless of how that plays itself out, uh, regardless of the way that it uh, shows itself in life, the, the essence of it, it's, its very core, pride is a desire to take God's place. Right? To be our own Lord, to be our own supreme being, to have ultimate control over our lives and perhaps over the lives of those around us. Uh, if we look at 1525, the Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. And 1619, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. The word there that's translated proud is very interesting. Uh, Hebrew word is goan, and it means supreme majesty. It's a word that is usually reserved for talking about God himself and, and his majesty. And yet it, that's the word he uses to, to refer to someone who is proud of heart because that's the essence of pride. And the very essence of, of pride is to say, I want to play the role of God over my own life. Right, I, the, the proud person is one who refuses to humble himself. Right, we kind of have a sense of what that means, to humble yourself before the Lord, before his word, before the authority of another. The proud person doesn't want to do that. They want to be the other before whom other people are humbling themselves. Lewis Smead, uh, one of the, the known ethicists, he says, Pride is a refusal to let God be God. It is to grab his status for yourself and refusing to join his invitation to join the dance as a creature in the garden. Right? If we see that, that portrayal, sort of that picture of God and his creatures, we want to be the God. We don't want to be one of the creatures who lives and, and, and sort of moves under God's authority. Some of you, perhaps, um, probably those who are maybe my age or a little bit older, might remember the four spiritual laws uh, it feels a little dated, but it, it was a pamphlet written by Bill Bright that was meant as an evangelism tract, something you could use to engage others in spiritual conversation. Uh, and the fourth law was all about submitting your life to Christ. And it was illustrated with sort of two circles. Each circle had a throne at the center of it. And the first circle had self written on the throne. And the second circle had Christ on the throne. And those were meant to be a representation of a just simple way to ask the question to somebody else, who is on the throne of your life? Right? Who are you submitting to? Who is in charge? Is it, is it you? Do you have final authority? 
do you maintain the right of the final say in any major decision in your life? Or have you fully and completely surrendered your life in submission to Christ to the point that you are willing to say he is on the throne and therefore I submit to his word? Right? The, the proud person is the person who doesn't take orders from someone else. Right? They have self written boldly on the throne of their life. That's pride. That's pride. It takes humility to say, you know, the throne of my life I will give to someone else. I am off that. I am no longer the king, the, the, the supreme being of my own life, but I'm going to humbly submit that position to another. That, that is what humility is. And pride is, you know, we see it in that illustration, that pride is ultimately idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. It's a form of wanting to worship someone or something else, namely ourselves, rather than God. That's why I believe it, it says it so severely. That's why pride always goes before destruction. Because God wins that battle in the end. And that is a... That is a, a, a useless battle to win to say, I will keep myself on that throne. Pride it begins as a spiritual issue. It shows itself often as a relational issue. And so it begins with a spiritual issue. It usually, we see it most commonly as a relational issue. That pride, the way we encounter it, pride is feeling the need to be better than others or have more than others, somehow surpassing others, those who are around us. And so, chapter 11, verse 2, uh, no, verse 12, the next one down. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. That's what pride makes us do, right? Belittling your neighbor. Having some interaction where you are seeking the upper hand, you are putting yourself above your neighbor. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this about pride, and, and you've probably heard this before. He writes, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And that's how we usually encounter pride, is that pride is always comparing ourselves with those who are around us. Pride says, I take no pleasure in having what I have unless I have more of it than somebody else. Right? Unless by comparison it makes me look good or it makes me feel good about who I am and what I've done, the life that I live. It's pride that makes us turn all of life into a competition. It makes us turn all of life into a hearing in which we're always on trial, we're always trying to prove our worth, we're always trying to justify our existence. Isn't that the way pride gets in us? It says, I must prove that I am worth something that I have value, that I'm somebody, right? that, that I am a worthy person. I think at the root, every person feels that. To some degree, at some level, we feel like we are constantly trying to justify our own existence, to prove that, that we belong somewhere, right? that we have value as a person. And so what happens, if, if that's the root of pride, the way that shows itself, is you end up seeing everything in life through this lens of how it affects you. Or you see everything in life through the lens of how it reflect, how other people will, will judge you because of it. Right? How does this make me look? Do I come out of this looking good? Which 
makes it impossible to truly and sacrificially love other people. Whether it be your own family members or your neighbors or, or your church members, whoever it is, uh, if, if everything is always somehow reflecting on you and you can't set yourself aside to truly enter into somebody else's experience, then you aren't really empathizing. Look at chapter 21, verse 4. It says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin." You see, a lamp is something that we, we use a lamp to see other things. And the lamp that we use determines how we see them, right? Uh, for instance, a few weeks ago, our family went to a nighttime star festival uh, at Malibu Creek State Park. And it, was, it, it started right before dusk, and so the sun was going down, it was getting dark. Uh, they had a whole bunch of telescopes set up on the lawn that you could look through. There was a bat hike uh, there was a, a talk on light pollution. It was just all this star festival stuff that was really fun. And so in preparation, we all colored lenses red for our flashlights and our headlamps and everything because when you're outside at night, right, if, you, if you have a white light, that destroys your night vision. Right? And it takes your eyes kind of a long time to adjust to seeing things in the dark. But if you have a red-colored light, it, it does not destroy your night vision, and you can see things better in the dark. So we're all walking around with our red flashlights and our red headlamps, uh, but the lens was red, and it made everything look red. Right? Everything sort of had this reddish, pinkish hue to it, even things that weren't really red. The lamp that you use colors everything that you see. If it says, uh, haughty eyes and the proud heart are your lamp, that's the person who everything they see, they see through a certain filter. They, they look at everything in life in terms of this question, how does this reflect on me? How does this make me look? Right? Is this a good look for me if other people see me engaging in this activity? If other people see me reading this book or watching this movie, does that increase their perception of me? Does that sort of lift me up or is that going to drag me down? Are they going to make fun of me? But everything in life is encountered through that lens. That's pride. That's arrogance. Now, how else do we diagnose pride? It's usually through our relationships. Uh, it's a spiritual issue, but this is where we see it. Here's some of the symptoms of pride. The first symptom is impatience. Like the proud person has no patience for other people. That's the very nature of, of patience, really. Patience is what? It's, it's allowing yourself to be inconvenienced by someone else right, without retaliating against them. That's what it is to be patient. And, uh, you know, when I talk about impatience, you have to believe me. I know what I'm talking about. I've, I've been around that block many times. Right, impatience is not allowing myself to be inconvenienced. Why not? Because everything's about me. Right? Don't they understand? Why don't they see what they're doing to me? Don't they understand how this makes me feel? Everything becomes about me. I have no capacity to relate to others in love. And, and the reality for me is that if I am being impatient, if I'm losing my temper, if I'm yelling at the kids, it has nothing to do with them. Well, maybe a little bit. Right? They set it off, but the reality is it's because of me. It's because something in my heart is seeing their activity through the lens of my own reputation. It's seeing their activity through the lens of how it makes me feel. 
And it's about myself. That's where impatience comes from. Or another symptom of pride is judgmentalism. Right? Being harsh, being a critic, being judgmental on others. Spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with uh, contempt, with bitterness, with pride. Right? Looking down on others with this this sense of superiority. Right? There's, there's almost a pleasure that we get from talking about the sins of others because we're not talking about our own sins. And gosh, if other people are so terrible, that makes us feel good about ourselves. It's the comparison. But that's pride. That's pride. If, if you are more troubled by other people's sins than by your own sins, then that's a pride issue. That's a pride issue. And here's the third... Uh, diagnostic of pride uh, is if your heart is unteachable. And we'll come back to this in a moment, the flip side for humility, but uh, it, there's, a, there's a character in the book of Proverbs who's called the scoffer. The scoffer is completely unteachable. The scoffer doesn't listen. The scoffer can't learn anything, right? Because he knows he has nothing to learn, right? He can't listen to others, and so he's unteachable. That's the, the capstone of pride. So, Pride is dangerous, but Proverbs presents humility as not just good, but beautiful. The beauty of humility. So here's what humility is. In the book of Proverbs, being humble is completely different from maybe being simple. Right? It's not just the simple person. In fact, a Proverbs says the, simple, the simpleton is destroyed for lack of sense. Right? In the book of Proverbs, being simple uh, is really just one more way of being a fool. Being humble, uh, it's part of wisdom. It takes, really, sophistication. It takes quite a bit of insight. Right? Humility is the end of a, of a road, of, of sort of the spiritual journey of the fear of the Lord, growing in wisdom, growing in humility. And it, it takes a lot of spiritual insight to, to uh, cultivate an attitude of humility in your own heart. Humility is, is not a personality trait. That's not just something that you're born with. It's a spiritual fruit. It's something that comes out of the fear of the Lord. It's something that comes from walking with Christ over time. It's something that we grow in, that we're born bad at, <laughs> but we learn through Christ. What is it? Uh, it's a disposition of the heart that is not always concerned with itself, so that it is free to obey God and to love others. The disposition of a heart that is not always concerned with itself, therefore it is free to obey God and to love others. Uh, it, it's actually one of those words that we know what it means, but it's a little hard to define when you want to be real precise about it. Here's one in interesting way, and, and this is how uh, Tim Keller got at it with this illustration by asking a question, how is your elbow doing today? How are your elbows? Are they okay? And now, probably most, if not all of you, immediately thought, that's a weird question. I haven't even thought about my elbow yet today. And that's good. Right? This is the way our bodies work, that if, if, you're, if you have a body part and it's working well, you don't think about it. Right? It doesn't call attention to itself. It's not always trying to be noticed. Right? If you have a body part that's always calling attention to itself, Something is wrong. 
Right? Maybe if you broke your elbow or if you hit your funny bone really hard this morning, you might be thinking about it. Otherwise, you did not. You did not think about your elbow today. Right? Right? How are your earlobes? They're fine. Probably none of you thought about them. And what Tim Keller says is the fact that our hearts are always asking this question, oh, how am I doing today? Have I been thought about enough today? Are people respecting me enough today? What do others think about me today? He says, that is a symptom that all is not well, right? That our, our ego, our sense of self-worth, basically our heart it is terribly sick, right? That's why it's always calling attention. It's always asking, how are people thinking of me, right? Your elbow doesn't do that. Why does our, why does our heart, why does our spiritual self always call attention to itself? Something is terribly wrong. I think the very essence of humility is a heart that's not always calling attention to itself. It's a, it's a self, it's a, it's a being that's not always saying, how does this thing make me look? Rather, it's, it's a heart that has been so radically set free that it's able to think about others. It's able to love others sacrificially without being haunted by this question, does doing this make me look bad? Right? Is, how is this doing my reputation? Am I, you know, am I serving them well enough? And it's not asking, do, how do they think, but what are others looking at me for? The humble heart is a heart that's radically free. And it's free from this constant second-guessing of self. It's free from this constant questioning. It's free from always being on trial. Right? Of always having to justify itself. Of always having to, to prove, you know, to justify its existence. Uh, and therefore, it's free. It's free to give sacrificially, it's free to serve others even when it's really awkward and when it's really weird and when it requires you to kind of set aside some of your own you know, personal dignity to be able to enter into the pain of another person and walk with them. The humble person is the person who's not always thinking of themselves. Here's an illustration, uh, well, a story. When I was in South Carolina, one of my uh, pastoral mentors there one of just the humblest people I know, and, and it's, even if it's hard to define, we probably all know people who we say, that, that's what it is right there, that's humility. This was a man I knew who had been in pastoral ministry a long time. He was a very well-loved pastor in his congregation. And I remember being in a small group Bible study with him one time. And someone asked him a question about a particular verse. They wanted to know where a verse was. Uh, I don't remember what they asked, but they wanted to know where something was in the Bible. And I, I simply remember he said, I don't know. You, you should ask my wife. She knows the Bible far better than I do. And he said it, maybe he had to be there, but he said there was not even a hint of sort of this snide little bitterness or just some funny remark. He said it, you know, truly and humbly acknowledging that he didn't know the answer to their question, but he, know, he knew who could help them his wife, and he simply said, she really knows the Bible even better than I do. And I thought to myself, I remember thinking there, and here's me, you know, preparing for pastoral ministry. I thought, well, that is quite a thing to say. Right? How many of you, if you were asked a question right, about your field that you work in professionally, could say, I don't know, right? That's hard enough. But then could say, you know, you know what, you should ask this other person who's not professionally in the field they have a greater understanding of my field than I do. Right? Or they know it better. Right? It's, enough, it's hard enough to say, I don't know, right? We don't like saying, I don't know. We want to know. We want to be seen as knowledgeable. 
but also to say, ask this other person, they're better at it than I am. It was, uh, it, you know, that was humility. That was humility from a heart that is not constantly on trial. That was a heart that doesn't feel the need to every day pr- prove its worth, to justify its existence, to once again prove to the world and to others that it deserves to be where it is. It's really the humble heart that is the only heart that can be so honest as that. Now, how do we diagnose humility? What can we strive for? How do we get there? Well, here's, a few, here's two ways to diagnose it. The first one is teachability. Right? If pride is marked by unteachableness, then humility is marked by teachableness. Uh, and, and I don't have a particular verse. I have nine chapters of Proverbs. Right? The first nine chapters, over and over, the father is saying, Son, listen to me. Son, gather up the words of my mouth. Right? Seek this out. He is constantly urging the son in the book of Proverbs to seek wisdom, to be teachable. Uh, one particular one is, is 426. Ponder the path of your feet and all your ways will be sure. Right? It, but it's only the humble person who is able to ponder the path of his feet. The proud person is constantly defending the path of his feet. Right? He can't bear the weight of asking, am I going the right way or not? Right? Do I need to repent and go a different way? But the humble heart is one who is teachable, who is able to listen to reproof. And in fact, the humble heart is one that loves to hear reproof. Because reproof is the opportunity to repent of sin and to make those mid-course corrections and to begin to follow Jesus more faithfully. The humble heart is one that can accept reproof as an opportunity to grow rather than the sting of of a burned pride. One that's been, been hurt because it's been exposed as being wrong. The humble heart is one that accepts that willingly, joyfully. The humble heart is that heart that, that knows full well how much they don't know. They know how much they still need to learn. They know full well that they are not at the end of the race of sanctification and they're willing to accept help from others. Here's one way to know if you have a teachable heart. I, I came across this this week, David Gibson, an Old Testament scholar. He said, he asked this question. When was the last time you read some instruction in the Bible that you didn't agree with and you obeyed it anyway? Or perhaps the last time you came across an instruction in the Bible that you just didn't understand and you obeyed it anyway? See, that's, well, thank gosh, that. Do I do that? Could I do that? Right, that's the mark of a humble heart that accepts the, the word of the Lord, not because it makes sense to us, not because we think, yes, that I can see how that leads to a better, happier life, but because it's the word of the Lord. Right, and my own understanding of it, my own agreement with it is sort of a secondary issue. I want to seek to understand it. But the primary issue is, if this is what the Lord has said, am I willing to humble myself and submit myself to it Right? Or is self still on the throne? And self must be satisfied. Self must understand and agree before I'm willing to obey. Here's another way to know if you're teachable. Um, very similar. Do you allow others to speak into your life? Do you allow others? Uh, the first one was about the Bible, but what about the communion of the saints? Right? What about other believers in your life? Do you allow them to speak into your life? and to be able to listen to that. 
Right? Or, or is that, would that be too uh, humiliating, too embarrassing to be able to admit that other people have some level of insight that I don't have? Right? They have some clarity of vision uh, about life that I don't have. And so I can listen to them and I can, I can welcome that input and I can, can even submit to it and say, yes, that, that's wise, that's good, that's helpful, I needed to hear that. Do you allow others to speak into your life and do you make room, make space in your life for that to happen? Teachability uh, is a mark of humility. Uh, I think the second mark of humility is dependence. Dependence on the Lord. This is Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here, what Moses is saying, what the Lord is saying in these verses, is that God intentionally humbled his people and Really, the only way that God humbles his people is through trials, through difficulty. And he's saying here, yes, I led you in the wilderness for 40 years. I caused you to hunger. And he did that because he had a purpose in mind. And the purpose was to humble his people, right? To, to do a work of spiritual uh, sanctification and, and bring maturity into their hearts. And so God would intentionally allow these people whom he loved to suffer to hunger because he had a greater good in mind and that was their humility and it was their dependence on the Lord. For most of us, right, most grown-ups, <laughs> dependence is a scary thing. We, we crave independence because independence, again, it's sort of this reflection of, of I am sovereign over my own life, right? I do not need others. But God says he delights in the attitude of dependence that is humble before the Lord. And God delights in humility to such a degree that he's willing to teach his children humility, even though it means humiliating at times his children. Now, having said all this, how do we grow in humility? Humility is a lifelong path. I take it to be one of the most difficult virtues for us to learn and pride, one of the most difficult sins for us to root out of our hearts. In so many ways, pride is a root sin. It's the kind that we can kind of chop down over and over, but it keeps growing back because the root is deeply lodged. How do we dislodge it? How do we grow in humility? Uh, it, you know, we can't just make the decision. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to try even harder this week to be humble, right? I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves. I'll be humble. I'm just going to do it, right? That, that would last like a solid seven or eight minutes before you failed and realize you need a better strategy. How do we pursue humility? Humility is a natural byproduct in a heart that knows and believes the gospel. That humility is a natural byproduct that naturally occurs in a heart that knows deeply and believes humbly the truth of the gospel. Right, to accept that, think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, 
that no one may boast. There's like five sentences in a row in there where he's trying to teach us this truth that we did not do this. We are not saved by our own goodness, our own works, but it's the grace of God. And the purpose is that there might be no boasting among those who know Jesus Christ that there might not be any pride, that spiritually it will root out this pride that lodges so deeply in our hearts. And he says, that happens because we know the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. That we know that. See, the human heart in our fallen condition is just hardwired to dislike that whole idea of of grace and accepting something we want to earn, right? We want to deserve We want to to work for and earn our own place because we want to take the credit. And if we can take the credit, that means we can also get the glory. And the little self that's perched on the throne of the heart can grow a little bigger and feel even better. The truth is, we don't really like this idea that there is nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. But it's truly and purely completely by grace. And that's why grace is so good for us. And that's why we need to go back day by day by day to, to rest in the goodness of Christ, to, to just marinate in the grace of God towards us in Christ, to relearn this lesson every day that we are not saved because of what we have done. We are saved purely as a gift, a gift of God's grace. Because what the doctrines of grace do is they deflate our pride. And it's like they deflate it from the inside out. They just, they just remove the nerve and then the whole thing just kind of collapses. Pride is constantly trying to prove your worth, always on trial, justify your existence. Humility has the unique ability to just rest. To just hear the word of the gospel that we're saved by the grace of God that's shown to us in Jesus Christ and, and to just be able to hear and accept and rest in that and say, Praise God. Praise God that he saved me and he loves me not because of who I am. And it's not because I'm better than anyone else. It's not because I've worked hard enough, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, I've earned my spot here. In fact, we're called to know our own sin and to think just the opposite, that we don't deserve any of this. But because of the grace of God, he looked upon us in our own sin. He looked on us in our spiritual poverty. He saw people who were rebellious, who would run from him, who would be this prodigal, who would spurn his goodness. And he saw us and he loved us. And he knew you by name. And he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. That he could therefore remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, make you into his child and sit you around his table. Here's one of the great freedoms that comes with knowing the grace of God to us in Christ freedom of humility. The freedom to stop thinking so much about ourselves. The freedom to stop obsessing over our own image. How others are seeing us. Whether or not they think of us the way we want them to think of us. The gift of grace is we can be done with that nonsense. We can rest in the sufficiency of Jesus, not ourselves. And therefore, with that gift of grace given to us, we're free to acknowledge our own sin. We're free to repent. We're free to 
say, yes, I agree with the Lord that I am a sinful person, right? I'm saved by grace. I still have these lingering sins that are hard for me to get rid of and I'm struggling with them, right? They, they, they tear me down sometimes. And I'm free to admit that because I don't have to worry that God is going to be like, oh, I you're right. I, I, yeah, I am kind of worried about you. No, God has accepted us in Christ. We can admit our sins. We can be honest about them with ourselves, with God, even with others, and have that humility to allow others then to speak into our lives. What the gospel does is it simply undermines all of our pride. It just comes in the back door and undercuts it completely. It takes it away for our own good. And then when we live in the environment of grace in which we all now walk in this kingdom of, of, of Jesus that God has transferred us into, then what becomes of our boasting? Right? When we know the depth of our own sin, but we know the, the pure goodness of God to us in Christ, there's the antidote to our pride. Knowing the gospel, walking in the fear of the Lord, knowing his glory, his majesty, his love for us, his grace and mercy toward those of us who believe. That is, uh, that's the best medicine for a troubled heart, for a proud heart, for a sick heart. What we need is to know the goodness of God to us in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ. And Lord, we do pray for the power of your spirit this week to take these verses from the book of Proverbs to teach wisdom to our heart. Lord, take your word and press it on us that it may take root, that it may grow, that it may bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 times that which has been sown, uh, not because of our goodness, but by the power of your spirit at work in those who believe. We pray that you would do this, Lord. Give us humility. Make us more like Christ. Humble us uh, that we might be confident in your grace to us, that we might delight in your delight in your children, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done and finished and accomplished. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.